Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday with your family, loved ones, friends, and anyone who may have joined you for some delicious turkey, pumpkin pie, and other mainstays of Thanksgiving dinner. I have another batch of double episodes for you all this week on the podcast. Today's episode being with firearms historian Logan Medish and Wednesday's episode being with Brad Smith of Walton Rods. But for today's episode, here's a little taste as to who Logan is and why I thought it was appropriate to bring him on the podcast. He previously worked for the Smithsonian, the National Park Service, and most recently the National Rifle Association before going on his own. When people think of curating historical items and studying it and writing about old weapons or antique weapons, you largely think of older people doing this, not millennials doing this type of work. But Logan is very unique in that he took an interest in this and in this episode he's gonna go through his background and how he came to do this and how he's essentially a freelance firearms historian in the present day i think you're gonna like his backstory and what he had to say and maybe develop an interest in learning about historical works if you don't already check out your local museums and take an interest in this kind of stuff here is Thank you for joining District of Conservation, Logan. I appreciate your time and you lending your expertise. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners, your background, uh, what led you to become involved in the outdoor industry, how you got interested in this? Why don't you begin with that? Sure. Uh, well, my name is Logan Medish, and I am a museum professional and arms historian by trade. Uh, I got my first real firearm when I was 10 years old for my birthday and started plinking on the range uh, at a young age. And then it grew into trap and skeet shooting and a little bit of hunting. And then I I went off to college and got away from things and uh, was going to major in history and and be a history teacher and ended up taking courses uh, for something called historic preservation, which I didn't even realize was a field at that time, uh, and ended up with a degree in, in historic preservation with a concentration in museum studies and spent time working for the National Park Service and the Smithsonian Institution uh, and also the, the NRA museums where I was their firearms specialist, which kind of brought things all full circle for me to work with history and firearms and then I have since um, gone out on my own as a, as a full-time arms historian and writer. So uh, that's, that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, that's a large swath of different institutions, the National Park Foundation to Smithsonian to NRA. Uh, that, that, that's a pretty comprehensive, unique, uh, illustrious background <laughs> to jump from those types of uh, uh, kind of almost polar opposite places. Yeah, and it's funny because people have asked me, they said, how did you, you know, how'd you get your, your job in, in the arms industry? And I'm like, uh, in the most unconventional way possible, because uh, I, I did not seek out 
a job in, in the arms industry. You know, it was always just the, the fun, passion, hobby side of things. Uh, and the museum community as a whole uh, in, in the United States is fairly liberal. Uh, and of course, I, I ran up against quite a bit of that working not so much for the National Park Service, but definitely more so with the Smithsonian Institution. Um, but it was interesting that once once I submitted my resignation there to head to the National Firearms Museum, which is run by the NRA, uh, there were there were a few closet gun owners that kind of came out of the woodwork there. Um, but it was uh, not something that was actively talked about in, in the open. Hmm. I would assume that would be the case, <laughs> especially in this area. Yeah, definitely. And it was, uh, you know, it was a little disheartening because uh, uh, for a while, you know, I kind of had to hide a little bit of who I was. Um, but, you know, it, at the same time, it, it was, uh, it's all about trade-offs and, and it was a, a very unique experience working for the Smithsonian and, I got to, to do and see and handle a lot of really remarkable objects that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise. And so, um, you know, you have to be able to put politics aside at a certain point, um, just for your own sanity, I think, especially with the way things are today. Yeah, it is uh, challenging to be authentic, but I think you can juggle it uh, well without stepping on too many toes because I think everyone is entitled to have their beliefs. Uh, but certainly in that industry with curating, I can imagine it's obviously it slants a certain way, as you mentioned, but uh, I, I also think in maybe my perception of curating and museum type exhibitioning work, uh, it tends to lean kind of as a more older demographic. You don't really hear about younger curators and I don't know if that industry has any uh, problems going forward with preserving stuff. Uh, can you talk about that and especially how it relates to firearms history too? Because I think like with, sure. with hunting and fishing, we, all, we often hear about the dwindling participation numbers. I wonder if that's similar in an industry like uh, working as a curator for a museum and especially in uh, firearms history. What, what's going on there? Yeah, so uh, the the museum field as a whole uh, is is what is considered a a pink collar field. Uh, you know, not not blue collar, but pink collar, because the museum world uh, as a whole is primarily dominated by women. I did um, not know that. But yes, uh, but the the odd thing of that is that there are fewer, it's becoming more, uh, but there are fewer uh, females in high-ranking museum positions, even though it is a female-dominated field. Uh, the museum field as a whole uh, does trend somewhat younger, um, you know, and there's, there's a wide swath because, of course, museums cover a little bit of everything, so there's, there's something to interest uh, of people of, of all backgrounds and, and ages. Um, so the museum staff tend to reflect that as a whole, but in terms of museums with primarily firearms holdings, it is very much a, a male-dominated field, as you would expect. Um, and, and there is only one female arms curator 
in the country. Everything else is is dominated by men uh, and and certainly older men, and that definitely uh, is in line with how a lot of people see the arms industry as a whole in this country is, is a bunch of old white dudes. <laughs> And that is very much how the arms museum industry uh, trends for the most part. Um, obviously, it's you know we're we're seeing some improvement in that just because time marches on and people get old and retire and, and things of that nature. But um, but it is a, a very interesting uh, dichotomy between the the normal makeup of the arms industry and the normal makeup of the museum industry and how they uh, compare and contrast within one another it's it's very interesting yeah that's a very good overview as to how the industry operates or especially curation i wanted to gauge your thoughts on what is it like to be a freelancer in this industry and how you go about uh, consulting people, are they comfortable having someone come from the outside who's not part of an institution? What has been your experience with that? Or are people actually welcoming that kind of like in other industries where they're having independent contractors come in, uh, whether it is to save money or to perhaps get younger, fresher perspectives uh, out there. So what has been your experience as a consultant uh, on your own doing this line of work? Uh, it's it's been very eye opening. I mean, obviously, self employment in in any industry is very different than than having that steady nine to five. Uh, but but in my experience in this particular industry, it's actually uh, been welcomed. Um, and I think a lot of that goes back to you know I mentioned working at the Smithsonian. There were kind of some closeted gun folks there, um, and. Uh, Earlier in 2019, I guess it was back in March, uh, there's an organization called the Virginia Association of Museums, and it's a a statewide organization. Um, And I had put in uh, the previous fall a a proposal to speak at their annual conference about, you know, just uh, kind of a a 10,000 foot bird's eye view of handling firearms in your museum collection, you know, uh, uh, gun museums for dummies kind of thing, because uh, you know, almost every museum is going to have some kind of firearm in it. You know, if it's a historic house museum, maybe they got an old flintlock hanging over the, the mantle in the house or whatever. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're ubiquitous in our culture. So it, they obviously show up in museums, but because of the more liberal leaning of museum staff, they don't necessarily always know how to handle it. Hmm. Um, and my proposal was accepted. Uh, and I was told that it was it was very narrowly accepted oh, no. by the committee. It almost didn't pass, um, and they had some concerns about even using the word firearms in the in the title of the presentation and all this stuff. Um, but really, what it came down to was the organization celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, and it was the first time ever in 50 years of annual symposiums that they've ever had someone come in and talk about firearms. And so it was something that they felt they needed to do. They just weren't sure how to go about it. Uh, And I'm delighted to say that it it ended up being a standing room only presentation. And the, the conference organizers told me afterward, the feedback they got from the attendees was that it was one of the best sessions they went to. 
Um, and so that was really, really heartening. So when it came time to apply for the, the 2020 symposium, I decided to step it up a little bit. And now, you know, let's not just talk about displaying the guns, let's talk about interpreting them, because then you get into a whole nother issue of, of how to interpret firearms in a museum collection. Uh, and I'm happy to say that that was accepted as well. And I'll be giving that presentation to them in, in 2020. So I'm able to kind of, you know, break into it. Um, if it was, wasn't sure it was going to happen at first uh, because they were a little leery of things. But uh, the attendance at the first one obviously showed to them that museum staff and volunteers, you know, they they have a thirst for the knowledge of how to properly handle these things in their collections. Um, and, and you can't just ignore it. So you might as well seek out people who are willing to help and who are comfortable with it. And that's what's great about us being in, in the arms industry and the outdoor community is that it is such a welcoming and open group of people that, you know, we love what we do and we want everyone else to love what we do too. And so we bring that zeal to, to sharing our, our knowledge and helping other people get into it. And so it, it really helps blend uh, the arms and outdoor community into the museum community. It's been really cool putting the two together. That's really good that they received your presentation well. And hopefully next year's presentation goes well. You'll have to update us here uh, how that goes. But Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, and I think you told me offline that another component of your work as an independent consultant is you write about the history behind certain firearms. Where has your work appeared uh, for listeners? Oh, gosh. Gosh, how much time you got? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, just a snapshot. Uh, just a snapshot as to yeah. where your work has appeared recently. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so I've had a lot of work come out uh, in online platforms for the Truth About Guns, the Firearms blog, um, Ammo Land. Uh, I've done radio stuff with Gun Talk Media. Uh, I do ghostwriting stuff for pieces at Rock Island Auction Company, a lot of stuff for range365.com, um, and, and a variety of, of print titles as well uh, through Athlon Outdoors Media with things that have, have come out in all of their different periodicals. Guns of the Old West is one of their biggest magazines that I've had stuff in. Um, and then, of course, I've, I've got my own uh, YouTube channel and blog uh, that I run stuff on. Um, but the, the easiest way to sum it up is it's I've, I've had stuff in uh, 20 different magazine titles, at least. And there's uh, a, probably a couple hundred pieces of, of digital online content floating around there as well. That's awesome. So multimedia all across traditional, digital and the like, which should be happening. I think uh, any any outdoor communicator should have a, a good balance of both just because uh, a lot of things are trending towards digital, but there's still some value in print. So that's really good. You have a pretty extensive yes. multimedia presence. I wanted to ask you what. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I wanted to ask you uh, what has been the most interesting historical item you've ever handled or seen uh, it could be something recently that you experienced or some item you came across uh years ago but what has been something that has been interesting for the listeners out there to to kind of gauge your okay. your thoughts on that yeah the okay wow i mean that's tough that's like asking someone if they have a favorite kid <laughs> and, uh, they they obviously do but they're not going to admit it in public um, <laughs> 
Uh, some of the coolest stuff I've handled. Um, when I worked for the Park Service, uh, I, I had the opportunity to handle some original George Washington presidential campaign buttons, which was, was really neat. Um, and when I worked for the Smithsonian, uh, I handled uh, Schuyler Colfax. He was the Speaker of the House. His personal copy of the 13th Amendment signed by Abraham Lincoln that abolished slavery. Uh, those were the, you know, couple of the, the two most, uh, the two most historic cool pieces. Um, in terms of firearms, uh, it's been amazing. I've, I've handled and fired uh, guns used by John Wayne. I've, I've handled and fired uh, stuff, the, the, the actual guns from Dirty Harry. I've shot Annie Oakley's guns. Um, lots of really rare prototype pieces. Uh, oh man, I mean, it's it's tough. It's really hard to, to try to narrow it down. But um, and and not all of it in a museum collection either. And that's the the really neat thing about this is that uh, in my past life working for the NRA, I helped manage almost a hundred gun collector clubs throughout the country, uh, and I got to know a lot of the different collectors uh, with their niche interests. Um, and of course, a lot of gun collectors have deep pockets, and so they've they've basically even got you know kind of their own mini museums, if you will, uh, of of really rare prototypes and, and historic arms. And uh, I've gotten to to experience a lot of really cool stuff that way as well. Sounds like you have for sure. I think a lot of people would be envious that you shot from John Wayne and Andy Oakley's guns. Those sound like fun things to shoot from. So consider yourself lucky. Yeah, they, they really were. <laughs> I wanted to I, move I on. Really do, oh, and yeah. I really do. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. As I was say, I've, I've had a lot of people, uh, I've had a lot of people over the years when, when they have heard of different things or saw different uh, social media updates about the things I was doing. They go, man, I hate you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yep. And the beautiful thing is this is my job. You know? <laughs> Yeah, you have to like what you're doing as an occupation or else it's not really fun. So you have to, right. might as well have fun and shoot guns at the same time. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> I wanted to segue into your thoughts on Virginia's uh, recent turn on events without delving so much into the political consequences, but with the various different gun control bills we're seeing. I don't know if you've taken a look at it, but as someone who has spent a significant amount of time around firearms, antique or not antique. Uh, and I think I saw in one bill that would potentially criminalize people for not reporting stolen guns. There's no exemption from what I understood from reading the text, uh, that there would be no exempt exemptions for antique guns that are not reported within 24 hours. Uh, what, what's kind of been your impression on that and, and just seeing that legislation have a lot of people who collect firearms voice their concerns about it here in our state? Because I know from the uh, Second Amendment rights angle and consumer-based perspective, I've seen a lot of people just outraged. That's why we see sanctuary counties being determined. Uh, a lot of people saying they're not going to comply in terms of sheriffs. Uh, but what is it from a collector's perspective or people who have an arsenal of firearms, especially antique firearms? Have you heard of anyone, what their thoughts are on all these uh upcoming pieces of legislation? You know, it's, it's really tough to, to get a read on it as, as with everything, uh, when it comes to legislation in, in the arms industry, you know, people, 
they start uh, formulating these what if scenarios and, and some of it can get pretty doomsday ish pretty quick. Um, uh, and, and unfortunately, the, you know, the legislators as a whole, whether it's here in Virginia uh, or on a federal level, don't always have uh, the most firm grasp on the idiosyncrasies that govern firearms and, and the definitions of pieces, whether it be modern, curio, and relic, or antique, uh, and, and the terms often get used interchangeably which colloquially is fine, but when it comes to legally, that's a big no-no because they do have very different meanings. Uh, And so it's it's entirely possible, uh, depending on how the laws get written uh, in uh, in the following legal sessions here in Virginia, it's possible that they might have an impact on arms collectors. Um, I certainly hope not. I would hope that Virginia would look to uh, federal law and how it regulates uh, antique arms and imperial and relic and things of that nature so that we can help protect uh, individuals who are arms collectors. Um, But we won't know until the the final version of of that bill crosses the governor's desk. Um, And and then, of course, there's a whole other issue that comes up is that there are a lot of collectors who collect class three items. You know, you can, you know, you got guys who are interested in gangsters and stuff collecting Tommy guns and, you know, original Tommy guns. And even though the guns are old enough that they classify as curio and relic, if they're still fully automatic, they're, they're, you know, governed under class three NFA issues. And that changes the whole ball game too. So, uh, there are a lot of levels where this could impact collectors, um, and, but unfortunately, we we just don't know how it's going to come out until we see the final the final wording of, of the the proposed bills next year. So it, it could be really bad. It might fly under the radar. I, I just don't know. Yeah, that's a pretty sober analysis, I would say, yeah, just because the language a lot of us have seen so far screams alarming and very restrictive. And it's not just because we're heightened about it and we just want to oppose stuff that may factor into our opinions. But I think a lot of us are critical thinkers and readers and we want to know what exactly is being contained. And a lot of the stuff doesn't seem like it'll protect basic assurances. And even like I mentioned, um, antique weapons. So that's going to be interesting to see what comes out of that. I, I fully agree with that. But more positively, uh, there is hope, I would say, with young outdoor communicators like yourself. Uh, much like me, you also belong to the Professional Outdoor Media Association. Talk about what you like about the organization, uh, if there are others like it that you also like as well, and just kind of if these outdoor media associations can help catapults Uh, outdoor communication to newer levels, if they're doing an effective job in honing younger talent uh, into into the industry better. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? And and what do you like about POMA, for instance? Yeah, so POMA has been really great. Uh, I've been a member for a couple of years now, I think it is. And uh, the the connections, yourself included, we connected at at this year's POMA's conference. Yes. Uh, Yes. 
But Puma has, has been awesome, uh, particularly for me, because I come at it from a slightly different angle as, as a historian. Um, there were, there were certain people before we went to the conference this year that I, uh, you know, I've done some, some digging into the, the member roster and I was like, all right, I want to, I want to track down this person. I want to track down this person and this person. Um, and you know, and after we had done, you know, the big round robin icebreaker telling everyone who you are and what you do, a number of those people that I wanted to make connections with actually sought me out to make the connection first. Um, which I thought was, was really cool. Um, and it's, as we've talked about earlier, uh, in our discussion, our industry is very welcoming, uh, contrary to what outsiders think. And and everyone kind of is on a, the same plane and the same playing field. Uh, and it's very welcoming and everyone at Puma, uh, has been fantastic, um, take it to a larger scale you know the, the national shooting sports foundation i've got a lot of connections with those folks you know and they're the ones that run shot show and everything um uh, but it's whether it's a regional organization or an, a national organization um nssf and, and poma are, are really doing great work and you know we've, we've seen a number of younger people who were at the poma conference um and there's there's a lot of renewed interest. Um, yes, you know, you, you go to gun shows and places and you are still going to see a lot of old white men uh, at those places, but that is not everyone. As, as you and I well know, you know, you've got a, a, a diverse familial background um, with, with your parents and stuff coming to this country and, and you know, you being in the arms industry and we've seen a a lot of really strong and powerful women at the POMA conferences and, and SHOT Show and the NRA Show, um, uh, a lot of uh, strong, diverse cultural backgrounds of people in our industry. Um, and it's, it's a lot broader than people give us credit for. That is very true. And I think uh, organizations like POMA are doing that, I would say, exceedingly well. I'm not saying that simply because I do have a bias towards that, but I've been involved with a few other outdoor communicator groups and they're wonderful, but I just feel like some others steered heavily towards the older crowd, uh, not as many opportunities to make headway. And I think maybe they just have Poma specifically has their branding uh, more up to par with what's trending. They're using social media more effectively, uh, TV and all these other mediums. So they're just kind of on the forefront of following with what's trending and I encourage everyone, as I've talked about before, to join if they are interested. I think we, I think at the conference, if you remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think they hit 500 members. I think I heard that correct. I think so, yeah. Yeah, which is really cool. And uh, so it's it's growing. It's welcoming towards everyone. And there are multiple opportunities to uh, not only get involved, but also to uh, get projects or even get a new job or to have opportunities to freelance. They're pretty good about that with the job listings that they offer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a, a ton of, of great professional development potential there. Um, but you know, as, as the old saying goes, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yes. And there are so many wonderful friendships and connections that we've all formed in this industry. And some of many, you know, some of those connections have been formed through POMA 
Um, and it's, it's very helpful. Um, you know, because if, if you don't know the person you're trying to get to, chances are, you know, someone who does. Yes. And I think the connections are not, uh, expeditious or not expeditious. What's a better word? Uh, you're not really, uh, seeking connections out of convenience. It's, it's not, right. it's not politically expedient, I should say in that term, but it's not so much a word to politics, but you feel like the connections you're making are not as expedient. They're more meaningful. And I think people, if they see that you're engaged with them and that you want to uh, be a part of the industry, they're going to take note and they're going to take you under their wing just because so many people are very expedient. They just want to get to some hurdle or they want to obtain some sort of opportunity and then they forget how they exactly reached that point. <laughs> so it's not as a right. expedient in terms of networking and, and building connections. So it's, it's more, I would say impactful in terms of forging relationships and, and lifelong friendships, even I would argue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, uh, it has more of a long-term and organic trajectory as opposed to, you know, the instantaneous, get it right now and move on. Mm -hmm. Do you have any parting thoughts before you pitch where people can find you? Anything else on your mind that you want to spout off on? Mm, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, just uh, go, go to your local museums and explore their collections uh, and, and see what they've got on display. Museums as a whole, uh, are, are often hurting uh, in, in this economy. And people aren't going to them as often. They, they need to see younger folks in there. Uh, so go, especially your smaller museums, you know, your local hometown historical societies, go check it out. Sometimes you'd be really surprised at what cool stuff is lurking in, in their dimly lit display cases. <laughs> I know I have found some really cool firearms that have just been, you know, languishing in, in uh, small museums. So you never know what you're going to find out there. Um, and I would, I would definitely encourage you to go check it out. Obviously, go to the big stuff, too. Go check out the arms exhibits at the Smithsonian, Bowdoin Firearms Museum. But don't ignore the historical society in your backyard. 